You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York, in for Emily Chang. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Airbnb hosts attempt to navigate tricky legal maze amid state abortion bans. Why hosting women seeking to get abortions may not be all that easy. Plus, as the biggest names in tech and media gather at Sun Valley, we'll hear from Anne Majiki, 23andMe, about the company's new study on, well, long COVID and the current state of biotech stocks. And DoorDash and Uber sync after Amazon agrees to take a stake in Grubhub's business. Details of the deal and why Prime members might start to favorite Grub as a delivery service. Let's talk about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling, of course, to end federal protection for abortions. It happened last month already. Many people wanted to try and find a way to help. Some hosts on Airbnb offered to open their homes to guests who needed to travel to states that will still allow the procedure. However, some of those hosts, well, they're realizing it isn't as easy a solution as it might seem. Bloomberg's Michael Tobin wrote all about this, joins us now. Talk to us about how hosts were looking to potentially step in and allow travel to states that allowed abortions. Right after the Supreme Court decision came out, hosts immediately were changing some of their listings to say, if you're a woman and you need to travel across state lines to get an abortion, you're welcome to stay at my place for free. And this is hosts really stepping up at a time where abortion access is being limited in almost you know half of U.S. states. And quickly, hosts learned that it was not as easy to do this as they thought. There are very restrictive laws in states like Oklahoma and Texas that will actually put out bounties on people who aid in a bet abortions. And this was an issue that came up last year. And companies like Uber were saying that we're going to defend our drivers if they are implicated um, in these lawsuits. And quickly what we've seen happen is some of these hosts take down these listings and then partner with local nonprofits who are able to provide housing. So perhaps be a little less obvious, a little less implicating to anyone who's looking to use that home. I'm also interested in whether Airbnb, you said how Uber came to mm-hmm. try and help and offer to pay the legal fees of its drivers. What have Airbnb done for their hosts? Right. So Airbnb has said that if any of its hosts are implicated in these laws, they will defend them. And they said that last September. And they also said if any other states pass laws that are similar to the one in Texas, they'll step up and do the same. The company has also made an unspecified donation to Planned Parenthood last year, but they haven't said anything else 
aside from you know, what's happened after the Supreme Court ruling. And this is a company that's really stepped up to provide housing to Ukrainian and Afghanistan refugees when those crises were happening, but we haven't heard about any of their plans or partnerships domestically. I mean, it has to be said, in many ways, the Ukrainian refugee crisis is in no way politically divisive. No. We still know that one third of the US population, at least on a Pew survey, agreed that abortions should be illegal. So we have to realize that this is a very politically charged conversation and indeed not everyone agrees. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in therefore whether we expect the companies to stand to make comments about how they support their employees as well because this is something we've seen many businesses say. That's correct and Airbnb has said that they will pay for employees who need to go across state lines to get an abortion but we haven't seen that extended to hosts yet or to guests. So at that point it still remains to be seen what the company plans to do. What about, therefore, solutions that some of the actual hosts have been coming up with? You say that they've been working with not-for-profits. Is that largely in the way in which that if you're looking to be able to offer your home for free to those who want to travel, is that the way to partner with not-for-profits charities? That's what I've seen so far. One host that I spoke to who is in Virginia said that they're going to be partnering with a local nonprofit, and they actually have two women who are coming to stay at their homes. So this is somebody who's been able to partner with a local nonprofit and make it successful. Uh, they've taken down the language from their listing on Airbnb, but they're still making it available through their nonprofit. Another host that I spoke to in New Mexico said that they had to take down the listing because of a threat that they got against their family. So it really does show how serious this can be. And they really hope that the organizations, um, they hope that Airbnb will partner with organizations to make this safe for all parties involved. And lastly, what about sort of the next step of, of investigative reporting for yourself? Like when you're looking at the, the ways in which this conversation continues to happen, are there other companies that you're discussing this with? Is there other ways in which you think Airbnb and the likes will have to eventually become more clear in some of their advice? I think what we're going to see is these companies are just going to be continued to be you know, put under public pressure in the public spotlight mm -hmm. to what they're going to do to support employees and hosts. And this kind of is similar to, you know, the conversation about who's an employee and who's a contractor. Yes. Right? And that's very clear with what you see with Uber. And Uber has stepped up to say, and Airbnb too, to their credit, if you're implicated in any of these lawsuits, we'll defend you. So we'll see if that actually happens. Michael Tobin, it's a great story. Thank you so much for coming on to talk about it. Meanwhile, another story that we continue to watch, the crypto crash has claimed another victim. This time, broker Voyager Digital has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. Now, the firm cites market volatility and, of course, the collapse of the all-important hedge fund it had lent money to. That's three arrows capital. Last month, Voyager had secured a $485 million credit line from the crypto mogul and white knight himself, Sam Bankman-Fried's Almeida Research. Interestingly, they owe Almeida Research too. Let's get out live to Sun Valley for Allen & Co's conference. Media mobile CEOs, business tycoons, they gather there annually. Very pleased to say, also gathering with them. Ed Ludlow, you've got a very special guest. Yeah. Yeah, let's go from billionaires and deals to health and data and bring in the CEO of 23andMe, and would you hear? Hi, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. The weather is beautiful. It's lovely. But it's been busy. You've it's been busy. You've been coming to this conference for a long time, but you're yeah. very busy, generally speaking. Correct. 23andMe. Yes. You're coming out of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. The consumer around the world is thinking a lot about their health. Mm -hmm. How's that helped you? People, you know, it's, it's interesting. With COVID, it was the first time when we would publish articles that, that would actually drive sales. 
So COVID definitely spurred people to be hyper aware of health okay. and definitely interested in what's going on. And 23andMe definitely saw a bump that people were interested in the research that we were doing and people are definitely interested in health. And as we enter this second half of 2022, and economies are opening and many people are double vaccinated, boosted. Yeah. Are they still coming to you? What is their yeah. consciousness about health data? I think people come to 23andMe, there's, there's, you know, clearly half of our customers come for ancestry and okay. then another half definitely are very interested in the idea that they're empowered to take care of themselves and they're empowered with information about prevention. And I think people have learned with the pandemic, there's like obviously like we think about masks, we think about vaccines, like all of that ties in with the world of prevention. So okay. suddenly being able to tie that as well with saying type two diabetes, are there things that you can actually do to prevent it? Are there actions that you can take? So lifestyle, environment, I think it all wraps in. People definitely start to think about that more and more. What can they do to just be healthier in general? Let's go back to basics, 23andMe. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. run through what it is you offer and how it works. 23andMe, it's, it's incredibly simple. You spit in a tube, we okay. collect your DNA, and we help you interpret your DNA. And we're different than all the other companies out there in that we never said we're just ancestry, we're just health. We really wanted to have this holistic vision of like, we're about you and understanding your DNA. And DNA is fascinating. Like you share it with all this life around us. You and I are 99.5% the same. So how is it, can we understand the DNA to understand why we're different? Some people you know, are introverts, some people are extroverts, some people love, you know, are high risk for type two diabetes, some people are not. Um, how can we actually understand how the DNA influences all of that? So we return our ancestry results to people and we return health results to people and we engage them with their own personal DNA. How many of these kits are you selling and where are they doing best? Is it here in the United States? Is it in other markets? Where is their most engagement? We're focused mostly on the US right now. Um, we also sell in the UK, we sell in Canada, we sell in 66 countries, but we don't sell health everywhere. Health is still highly regulated in most of the world. So it's mostly in the US. Um, we have, you know, we still see, we, we see good uptake from our customers that are really interested in, again, both understanding ancestry and understanding health and what's interesting is that there's a real tie-in of like most people can relate and say like okay if you're of Jewish descent or if you're of African descent you're potentially at higher risk for certain conditions right. so there's a real tie-in between the ancestry and what your health predispositions are you made an interesting acquisition lemonade okay. mm -hmm. telehealth it was another kind of big pandemic era yeah. hot ticket yeah how's that gone for you the reason why we bought Lemonade is very different than why other groups got into you know, telehealth. It's not because we wanted to get into urgent care and you know, strep throats and the whole telemedicine craze, but rather we saw suddenly this opportunity that people are comfortable talking to their clinicians online. And that frankly, most clinicians are not trained on genomic medicine. Meaning that if you go and you get your genetic results for Alzheimer's or chronic kidney disease or, you know, other conditions, most physicians today are not trained on what to do with that. And so 23andMe, by acquiring Lemonade, now has the opportunity to offer the full stack, meaning that I can give you access to a, you know, direct-to-consumer approved, FDA-cleared test. I can get you your genetic information, and now I can actually provide clinicians who are trained on genetic information and a pharmacy that is also trained on how your genetics interplay with medications. So I can pass, offer now that full service to our customers. 
that was a successful acquisition. What's, it's been, yeah. what's missing? I mean, are you out there looking for similar opportunities to build out the 23andMe offering? Well, acquisitions take a lot of time to integrate. Okay. So I would say the first step is like, is the integration, but then really be able to start to train clinicians um, and provide those to our customers and provide that full package. Like people today still don't necessarily know what to do with all their genetic information. So there's a whole process for us of educating our customers. Like we're going to, we're going to give you healthcare providers now who can help you actually understand how do you actually potentially translate that into your life and lots of ways that we can actually leverage the service to help, you know, encourage behavior change. You're the CEO mm -hmm. of a publicly traded company now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Healthcare is important for consumers, but we're in a, a, a challenging inflationary environment. Mm -hmm. And we've been having a lot of discussions in the last 24 hours about where does the consumer stop spending? Mm -hmm. Do you think that the consumer will continue to assign importance to spending on healthcare data, monitoring, metrics? Mm -hmm. Or is that something that there's a risk that consumer spending slows down? I think, I think there's a couple interesting trends. So I think first off is people are really frustrated with the lack of transparency in healthcare, the surprise bills. And I think that there's definitely an encouragement. People want to have more control. And I think one thing that 23andMe has really led on is being a low cost provider of information and making it really affordable and accessible. So I think more and more there's going to be a trend where people want to be in control. They want to know exactly what they're paying for and they want to be able to know that they're actually getting a reasonably priced service. So I think that 23andMe at our current you know, $200 price for a health and ancestry kit, it's in that range of reasonable for people. What is the Amojiki mm -hmm. big picture outlook? for the rest I, of this year look, and beyond. Oh, well, for this year and beyond. I mean, I look at, I focus on beyond. So I, for me, I've always been very much focused on the long-term vision. And the long-term vision is a totally different type of healthcare system that is frankly about your best interest. Today's healthcare system makes money when you are sick and you go into the system. And so I've always been focused on a self-pay direct-to-consumer model because my relationship is directly with you. How is it that I, I can win as a company and you can win as an individual if I can keep you healthier? So I really look at a world, how do I actually empower you to be healthy at 100? How do I empower you to be as healthy as you possibly can and not actually get sick to begin with? Final question very yeah. quickly. Do you think 23andMe is seen as a potential partner from a bigger, for a bigger healthcare system or even a potential acquisition? Have you ever thought about mm -hmm. doing that? I think now that we've acquired Lemonade um, and the focus that we have on genomic medicine and the deliver, delivery of medicine, I think that 23andMe could play a really important role in helping bridge consumers who actually have their genetic information with the rest of the medical world and how they're operating and start to bridge that genomic divide like help people actually understand what is this information, how right. to use it in a clinical setting, as well as how to use it in a lifestyle setting. Right. 23andMe CEO, Hamujiki. It's Thank not you. just billionaires and deals. It's health and data as well, Caroline. Back to you in New York. Might, she might well be a million billionaire. We'll have to check the Bloomberg billionaires list. But what a wonderful interview. What a fascinating CEO and Mujiki there of 23andMe and our own Ed Ludlow. We'll be back in Sun Valley on Thursday live with Eventbrite CEO Kevin Hartz, Don Garber, Major League Soccer Commissioner. Make sure you tune in at 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. Coming up, DoorDash shares drop after competitor Grubhub struck a deal with Amazon. How Grubhub will have easy access to Amazon's broad consumer base. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Thank you.
everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Apple's latest Mac chips have shaken up the personal computer industry, driving sales of Apple's MacBooks and iMacs, and pushing rivals to search for new solutions. In just the last year and a half, Apple has output the M1, to the M1 Ultra, to the M2, and over the next year, I expect new M2 Pro and Max chips, as well as the first M3 chips. But all of this has taken a toll on Apple's chip efforts for its other products. Case in point, Two of Apple's most popular devices, the iPhone and the Apple Watch, will not be getting their typical big chip upgrades this year. For the first time since Apple began designing its own iPhone processors, the base iPhone 14 models won't be getting an all-new chip. Those phones will stick to the A15 from the iPhone 13. Instead, only the more expensive iPhone 14 Pro line will get a faster A16 processor. Similarly, for the first time in its own history, the Apple Watch will be sticking to the same processor technology for the third year in a row. While the Series 8 will get an S8 chip, the processor will be on par with the S6 chip from the Series 6 in 2020. Apple has also been facing hurdles with the development of its first cellular modem, with test versions of the component facing overheating issues. I don't expect an Apple modem to arrive until 2024 at the earliest. I believe all of these issues are in part the result of Apple's chip department being spread too thin as well as a new focus on the Mac. It's also of course due to industry-wide bottlenecks like the chip shortage, which is leading to higher prices as well as rising shipment costs. And TSMC, Apple's manufacturing partner, is also not without blame due to its somewhat rocky transition to new 3 nanometer processor technology. I'm Mark Gurman. This is Power On. Thanks to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman there. And don't forget, sign up for Mark's weekly Power On newsletter at Bloomberg.com. Now, let's talk Amazon because it struck a deal to take up to 15% of Grubhub. It also will offer its prime users in the U.S. a one-year membership to the food delivery service. Now, Grubhub is owned by the Dutch company Just Eat Takeaway, which announced plans to find an investor or bidder for the U.S. business in April. Manu Singh of Bloomberg Intelligence, I'm pleased to say, is here to tell us why 
Why did Amazon want to get into the delivery service? Well, the lines are clearly blurring between what Amazon is doing in terms of last mile delivery versus what these companies are doing in terms of food delivery and grocery delivery. And I think Amazon views them as a threat. And for Amazon, it's an easy way for them to you know, partner with Grubhub, which has been losing share, but it does have a good uh, you know, customer base in cities and urban areas. So it is also a way for them to segment the market they did a similar partnership with Deliveroo in the UK. Mm-hmm. So they're really targeting that high-end users that Grubhub has, albeit it's losing share. But I, I think that's the play here. And then over time, they want to bundle everything. You know, they already have music, video. Well, add one more service, and their Prime subscription becomes uh, something that uh, customers can't do without. Why go for the high-end user? Certainly for me, Deliveroo, it started by really doing the top-end restaurants, then went a little bit lower, but is the high-end buyer more recession-proof at the moment? Is that the idea? Yes, and and also they have higher uh, repeat uh, purchases. So, you know, when when you talk about subscriptions in this business, it's all about frequency mm-hmm. and how can you have the customer, you know, order more uh, kind of more times than they would have done otherwise. So, in this case, I think the other problem that I see for uh, DoorDash and Uber is they charge a take rate based on the basket size or, you know, yeah. Amazon can say, okay, we'll give you a flat fee. Yes. It doesn't matter in terms of, you know, uh, how many times you order, and that could be very disruptive to the business model of uh, Uber and DoorDash. I mean, they're already struggling with profitability. If this was to come, uh, I think that would be a big pressure on, on their take rates. Talk to us about the structure of the deal and about their option, basically, to eventually own the full asset, should they wish. I think Amazon in this environment can't make a big acquisition. They already bought MGM. They bought Whole Foods, but now I think the regulatory environment is more challenging. Even the Deliveroo partnership went through intense deal scrutiny. Yeah. And so my hunch is, you know, even though they would have gotten uh, this asset very cheap, I mean, uh, just he paid $7.5 billion for Grubhub. It, it will be substantially marked down in this environment. But I think for Amazon, they really think partnership is one way for them to gain, uh, you know, access to Grubhub customer base. And they can do everything that they would have done if they had acquired the asset. So it makes sense. In general, we can see more consolidation in this space. I think when you were talking about the pricing structure, I was thinking of my Instacart bills and how yes. much I'm assessing how much you know I get added on from me just walking into a store. Are we seeing more consolidation likely in the space in general? Well, there will be a lot of pressure, right? So if you are getting into a slow economic environment where customers are pulling back on spending, there are just too many subscriptions out there that mm-hmm. a customer has and they have to pair back on what is discretionary versus what is not. And that will be a catalyst for uh, you know consolidation because order growth will slow down substantially. Remember, they're up against COVID comps. Yeah. DoorDash and Uber grew triple digit order volume growth. And, and so those comps are very tough and that would be a catalyst for Instacart and the smaller guys to give in and say, okay, we need to partner with a Walmart or a Target or you know one of the uh, big retailers out there. Mandeep Singh, always so smart, Bloomberg Intelligence, great analysis as always.
This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Shares of Rivian surging on Wednesday. The electric vehicle maker reaffirming its annual production target revealed the production accelerated, in fact, in the second quarter. Rivian still on track to produce 25,000 units this year. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow. Well, we're never going to let him relax over there in Sun Valley. We're going to keep you on top of all the EV news, as we know you love it, Ed. And, you know, this was a marked, like, market reaction. Why? Because it, they are making progress. You know, they produced 2,500 vehicles approximately in the first quarter. They've jumped to 4,400 in the second quarter. You know, this is about a production ramp. You, you remember, Caroline, 2018, how kind of micro-focused we were on Tesla and the production hell. And Rivian is showing that it is making progress and the street basically looking at that and saying, OK, we believe you that 25,000 vehicles is possible this year. And look, I know I'm in Sun Valley, but guess who else is in Sun mm-hmm. Valley? RJ Scarringe, Rivian CEO. Your mate. I've already said hello to him. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, it's kind of interesting for him to be here. But this is a, certainly a company now heading in the right direction in their factory, at least. So you said hello. Did he say anything back? He did. You know, uh, RJ Scarringe is an interesting guy. You know, a lot of sources tell me that he is often the smartest person in the room, but he comes across as incredibly humble. It's an interesting one because Alan and co host a tech media and telecoms conference and you wouldn't think the automotive really fits into that he's not the only automotive executive here of course mary barra the gm ceo is also here but i said what are you going to be talking about and i think you know for them it's a little bit of a victory lap they did the sixth biggest ipo in u.s history in november the stock's been under immense pressure since but they are still kind of the golden company with some serious wall street backing okay so where do they go from here then ed they're ambitious and i think this has been part of the street's concern that they talk about being able to ramp production at that Illinois facility, not just to 25,000 this year, but to 100,000, then 150,000 units annually. They plan to break ground on a factory in Georgia very soon that could build 400,000 units annually. And they're going to start production on that in 2024. So they have a lot going and $15 billion approximately on the balance sheet. Mm. It's really about the month by month and quarter by quarter execution. And that's what the streets laser focused on. Beautiful, Ed. We thank you. Stay well. Meanwhile, raising venture capital isn't as easy for startups and 2022 turning out to be challenging year, to say the very least. As a recession potentially looms over the economy, founders are thinking of smarter ways to secure money. Joining us now to discuss all of this from M13 is the managing partner, Carl Alamar. And it's great to have some time with you, Carl. And just talk to us. We're just hearing about, you know, companies that recently went public and the strain that they've been under from a public perspective in the private market. How are you seeing valuations and how are you seeing the willingness of founders to want to raise in this sort of environment? Yeah, no, it's a very interesting time for sure in in venture capital. Um, I think the the whole problems, everything that's happening in the public markets is really kind of uh, ricocheting back into the private markets. At the end of the day, we all invest in these companies because we want to see them go public, we want to see them grow and, and create great valuations. And when there's so much uncertainty in the multiples and how to value these businesses, it ricochets back from the late stage investors who are holding off, waiting for the market to settle and, and find its bottom, uh, back through the earlier stage investors like ourselves, who ultimately want to make sure we invest in companies that can get later stage funding. I mean, you've invested in Bird, Bonobos, 
allocate. I mean, we all know Daily Harvest, Headspace, many people using that in this current environment at the moment, Lyft. You're no stranger also to navigating companies during downturns, the great financial crisis, 2008 and, and thereon. What's different this time, if anything? Yeah, it's interesting. I've actually, I was an operator before I was an investor. I had a company back in the late 90s that I uh, was able to exit through the bubble burst of 2000. I had a fintech company in 2008 that we navigated through. We eventually were able to exit in 2010. So I uh, definitely went through these challenges myself. I think that every uh, every economic downturn is different in its own right. Uh, this downturn is, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of conjecture about what's driving it. But ultimately, there's a lot of international activity going on that's driving inflation, that's driving some of these things that are really scaring the, you know, the, the market. The one big difference is, um, whereas in 2008, really money just dried up. I think the situation we have today is there is a lot of money sitting on the sidelines. The money hasn't dried up. I think the market volatility has created nervousness and created caution on the part of the investors themselves. And so that money is going to have to come back to work. Uh, these funds, these later stage funds and investors have to put that money to work within a certain predetermined period of time. And so really, as the market really finds its bottom, there's a lot of money ready to come back in. So we actually are very, very positive and hopeful about the future. Um, and the opportunity for these companies to, to raise money in the future. But the period between here and there is really the unknown. You were, of course, as you said, in fintech, and one key fintech name, pin-up of where you and I originally helmed from in Europe, Klarna. I mean, huge downgrade in terms of its overall market valuation. How did, as a previous leader of businesses in this time, how do you ensure that you're able to weather these sort of storms? Have these companies raised enough previously? If they're not, how are they also helping their employees who kind of wanted a, a liquidity moment? Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question. You, you have to consider um, the amount of capital you have, your ability to run. I think... You know, the companies that have a lot of capital on the balance sheet, uh, whether they're private or whether they're public, have the highest potential to see through this time. Uh, if you do think of it as a prefix period of time, really, you just have to manage the business through it. And once you get through the other end, hopefully the market begins to turn, you begin to see the benefits of, of building and running a, a solid business. But your question about employees is so important, especially in the earlier stage. You know, where in this market as well, where there's very low unemployment, employees do have a lot of options to think about moving around and think about the things they want to do. A lot of companies are thinking about layoffs and some kind of tightening on their earnings uh, potential. And the one really, really important thing is to keep your best performers and to motivate them. Mm. And so one thing we really speak to our CEOs about is just how to really deliver that vision, bring them along for the ride, make sure everybody realizes that you know, these businesses aren't changing. It's just that they, the vision is something that they have to be much more efficient about achieving. And so bringing the best team along with you and making sure they're motivated to see through to the end of that journey is incredibly important. Can companies, as, give us your assessment of the overall econo economy and recession risks that you see, because the companies that you have funded in the past are sort of very discretionary names. Tonal, of course, the likes of Headspace and Lyft and Daily Harvest, all of these things are kind of, well, treats, really, if you're thinking of those that don't have all the cash swashing about. Do you worry that they are going to have a tougher time as people are pulling back slightly on their purse strings? Uh, to a degree, yes. I mean, you're talking about really the later stage businesses. Some of these have already exited, of course, so they're not really in our portfolio any longer. So we don't really 
you know, we, we realize our benefit at the exit point, whether it's an M&A transaction or an IPO. So we don't necessarily maintain our ownership through, you know, this is the public status of the business. Um, those public companies across the board, all tech companies across the board are obviously suffering massive compression of their valuations. And realistically, when you see the, the multiples and the valuations that were in place last year, they were probably unrealistically large. So have they over-compressed? Probably. If they've over-compressed, then there's opportunity for growth again once they hit bottom. And that's really, as an as a investor and kind of my personal private or public portfolio of my own, mm. you know, it's really about, for me, waiting it out and allowing these good companies that have good fundamentals see through the downturn and begin to get recognized for their value again. Carl, so it's great to catch up with you when you have such a portfolio as yours and those that you've exited and ones that remain, of course, the companies that you still wait for that exit to occur. Carl Anima, really wise words coming from the managing partner of M13, how to weather this particular storm. Another story we continue to watch, Walmart, talking of well, consumer discretionary, reportedly told some suppliers they need that new fuel and pickup fees are coming. According to the Wall Street Journal, the giant retailer will charge companies that use Walmart to transport goods to its stores and warehouses. Some of Walmart's, Walmart's competitors, such as Amazon, have already imposed similar fees this year. Coming up in the wake of rapid pandemic-related gaming industry growth, Convoy Ventures is announcing a $150 million fund. But how much of that is being allocated to the blockchain gaming? We'll discuss. There's a Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So crypto, the space in what we call a winter industry, some say in crisis, but what about the underlying technology? What about in the space for gaming? Convoy Ventures is seeing potential. The gaming-focused VC firm has raised $150 million for a new fund, which will include investments in blockchain games. Joining us now, Josh Chapman, managing partner at Convoy Ventures. How is the gaming space going to ride this out, do you think, Josh? 
Absolutely. And thank you for having me, Caroline. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, blockchain gaming space is going to thrive during this next uh, period of the macroeconomic cycle for a couple reasons. One is blockchain gaming rises on the back of the gaming industry, which already has 3 billion gamers worldwide. Uh, the average age is 36 years old. Um, you know, 45% of gamers are women. And this has become a global industry. You know, over the last five to 10 years, you're seeing about 100 million people join the gaming industry uh, in general. On the back of that, there has been technological innovation in gaming uh, for decades, ever since the 1970s when the gaming industry really, really started. Mm. With blockchain gaming specifically, you're looking at an industry that is basically bringing two primary things to the gaming industry. One is business model innovation, uh, which I can dig into a little bit more. And second is the digital asset ownership of the consumer. And Mm. those two trends are going to drive the success of blockchain gaming for the next decade. Now, I don't want to say that all of your investments are in any way blockchain related. I know only partially and only partially this fund will go into it. But you have got some big names. And of course, Sky Mavis would have been the real pinup. But that's become a kind of controversial game to be associated with Axie Infinity just because of the way in which, well, suddenly they've moved away in this play-to-earn kind of model. How do you see the space evolving? And why is it so controversial, do you think? You know, I I don't see it as a very controversial thing. I would actually pivot that more to what they're doing is truly quite innovative, and that sometimes sees resistance in the gaming industry. And so when you look at the success of Sky Mavis, you're looking at a team that has been incredibly ambitious and really pushed gaming to its limits by saying, when you play, you can earn this in-game token thing that you could actually trade on external exchanges, hence why there is a token attached to the Sky Mavis platform. We have been thrilled with how the Sky Mavis Davis team has navigated, especially the last six months and different challenges. They have done a great job at reopening the bridge. The founders and the company really took ownership of a lot of the things that kind of went down and uh, they've really done a great job navigating navigating this period. But what's been most uh, controversial that you're kind of getting at is the fact that should playtime be rewarded with financial rewards? And the idea is actually not that novel because people have been gifted things in games for decades mm. through cosmetic items, through gift boxes, through perks, through discounts. What we're talking about is that the blockchain ecosystem in general has brought this token financial uh, personal ownership to the gaming industry. And the two combined has actually been quite powerful. Yeah. And so Sky Mavis is truly one of the most uh, successful, if not the most successful blockchain-centric platform on the planet. And we just happen to be fortunate enough to be an investor in this amazing team. Of course, Axie Infinity also suffered a hack. Some now reporting that it was related to a particular ta- part of the talent looking at a LinkedIn ad. And uh, we'll look into those reports as to how on earth it happened. But uh, of course, when you suffer hacks like this, you as a backer of the company, should you be there as a sort of money of last resort, some sort of bailout option? Absolutely. Well, I can't get into that specifically about how that went down, but I can tell you that the bridge has been reopened and fully funded. And I can also say that we're super impressed with how the team at their own expense and how the company balance sheet at its own expense came forward to protect the community from having to take that hit, right? That hack was, you know, an unfortunate event, but the team and the company really stepped up to own that. When it comes to the investors, of course, we're incentivized for the success of this company. And so we'll continue to be in their corner. I obviously can't get into the exact details on how that bridge was 
kind of plugged in gaps, but um, they really navigated it incredibly well. And as an investor, we're thrilled to continue to be in their corner and support them publicly on on, on publications like this, as well as you know privately in boardroom meetings with them. So what kind of other gaming startups, therefore, are pushing the envelope, being innovative, using new ways in which to use the blockchain as the underlying technology, but also NFTs yeah. and ways in which to reward? Yeah. So you're seeing a lot of things that we get excited about at Convoy is we're really specialists on investing into the technology and platforms and infrastructure for the future of the video gaming industry. That technology and infrastructure side on the platform stuff that we look at of, you know, the next Discord, the next Twitch, the next Roblox, those kind of companies are what we're trying to invest in at the early stage at Seed Series A. Um, The type of technology the blockchain brings is really things around uh, digital asset ownership, digital identities, um, and a new business model. I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but the business model innovation that blockchain brings to gaming is going to be, in our view, as big as the rise of the free-to-play gaming business model that emerged in the late 2000s. The the free-to-play business model um, brought in about 50 to 80 billion of value to the gaming industry, which is now valued at over 200 billion. We think blockchain gaming, with the rise of uh, a marketplace business model that allows for the transfer of transactions automatically without having to rely on counterparties is a very powerful technology that the gaming industry is going to absolutely take advantage of and integrate into Web2. I think you're going to also see a lot of gaming companies not necessarily go the ICO route, but they will incorporate some type of NFT revenue component to what they're doing. Hmm. We think this can be incredibly powerful, and it's already proving to generate billions of dollars uh, already in the last 12 to 18 months. Josh Chapman, managing partner of Convoy Ventures, thinking about the new ways in which companies will raise funds as well as the ways in which they'll continue to develop. We thank you so much. China accusing the U.S. of technological terrorism in its push to stop ASML and Nikon from selling key chip-making technology to the country. Now, joining us now is the man who helped break that scoop, Eric Martin. And it really is interesting about how the U.S. is leaning on ASML, of course, the Dutch equipment maker and Japanese maker Nikon as well. China responding pretty aggressively to it. Uh, that's right, Caroline. What we've seen is uh, China rejecting the uh, the pressure that the U.S. is putting on ASML as well as on uh, Nikon of Japan, uh, but ASML having uh, by far the biggest market share of this technology, DUV, deep ultraviolet uh, lithography, the mm-hmm. etching equipment for chips. I cannot tell you how much I had to look into uh, that sort of technology when I used to report on ASML's numbers and some of the other European equipment makers. What do you think China could do in response? What, do you, what about their own innovation within the country to be able to develop such, such equipment? Well, we've certainly seen efforts by the Chinese to develop uh, their own uh, DUV equipment. To date, they haven't had a whole lot of success with it. Uh, ASML remains the by and large, the sole provider of DUV to China. And these are not the most advanced etching uh, etching equipment. This is the kind of next, uh, the second generation, the slightly older generation that we're talking about, but still the most commonly used 
in uh, in this industry. And so this is something that uh, that the Chinese definitely have a desire to uh, to steal a march on uh, the advanced countries, uh, the uh, you know rich countries that are selling and making this equipment, but that they have thus far not been very successful in that effort. So when the U.S. realizes this is a way it can really apply pressure from a technological standpoint, do you think it will bear fruit? I know I asked this previously, but have we heard any further from Nikon, from ASML, as to whether they are willing to respond? Well, what we understand is that ASML uh, so far has not gone along with uh, and has objected to the, uh, the U.S. push uh, on the Netherlands for ASML to be cut off from these kinds of sales. Uh, you know, their feeling is that... Uh, uh, that this is not something that the uh, you know that the U.S. Uh, should be uh, should be doing, um, but we've seen a broad U.S. push on China uh, and on SMIC and some of these chip producers in China, and uh, it's something that the uh, the Bureau of Industry and Security is you know on a daily basis looking at in terms of trying to stop China from. Uh, matching or overtaking the U.S. in this kind of technology on the on the national security concern. Next thing you're looking for, Eric? Uh, well, whether ASML, uh, you know, eventually does go along with this, or whether, uh, you know, more uh, more aptly, if the government of the Netherlands goes along with this, mm. with blocking the sale of this kind of technology, because this is a real choke point for China's chip industry and something that could really hamstring China going forward. Eric Martin. With all the scoops, we thank you. We look forward to how that story continues to progress. Meanwhile, that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Tomorrow, well, we're back in Sun Valley. Eventbrite CEO Kevin Hartz, Bangaba, Major League Soccer Commissioner. Football, we call it, really, if you're British. Make sure that you tune in 5 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Pacific. And don't forget to check out our podcast. You can find it on the terminal as well as online on Apple, Spotify and iHeart. From New York, this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.